It should be noted that Dan is doing some research on the Book of Esther, which is why this is very much at the forefront of right. what you're thinking about right I'm now. I'm doing it in part for church programming. So we have a series in the spring that I'll lead called Almost Banned from the Bible. Oh, yeah. And we're going to look at Esther. But it's, and Song of Songs? No. Actually, we're just going to look at Esther. And oh, then okay. perhaps a, at a future time, we'll do another. Uh, okay. Actually, you could do a, uh, one of these. No. no okay. All right. Never mind. And in uh, a second, we should return to The Song of Songs is the only other book in the Hebrew Bible that doesn't mention God, correct? Isn't that right? Yes. Yeah. I had to... Ding, ding, ding. I got I one right. To, I had to file This has been Hebrew brain. Bible Trivia with I know, your right? favorite Christian theologian. We're now all over the place, so... I'm Dan. I'm B. And this is God for Grownups. And our topic, given recent events, but also given the longer history of this issue and problem, is anti-Semitism. And I feel, I feel you should begin. Venture? Yes. I'm well, going to pass the buck right away on the, this one. <laughs> um, Well, and I would always defer in talking about anti-Semitism, but I would, I would always defer to one of my former professors, Deborah Lipstadt, who is sort of the expert on anti-Semitism in general and the Holocaust in particular. And she testified today in Congress about the increase in anti-Semitism in this country. Um, we wanted to talk about this because of the rising tide of anti-Semitic events, but making the decision to even talk about it is a political choice. What is? What do you mean by a political choice? Um, Anti-Semitism is a problem on the right and the left. On the right, it's pretty open white nationalism, the notion that Jews are somehow less than and they don't want Jews a part of their white nation and uh, a long history of neo-Nazism and or Nazism and then neo-Nazism and all of these sorts of things. But on the left, there is a pretty significant anti-Semitism now. And that involves... Um, first of all, conflating all Jews with the contemporary state of Israel and holding all Jews responsible for what they perceive to be problems with the contemporary state of Israel. So that, for example, the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement um, has uh, resulted in people targeting Jews who are not Israeli verbally, politically, and physically for violence because of a connection they are drawing. So... So I get the basic the basic point, which is on the right, the anti-Semitism is overt, it's explicit, it's in your face, it's horrific. On the left, it's it's more subtle, it's more disguised. Is that the case? Um, it's justified. More justified. By other, okay, it's justified. Um, other things that are presented as progressive values, and then. Um, there's also the fact that uh, anti-Semitism is not seen on the left as a real problem. And when Jews want to talk about anti-Semitism, they're seen as taking the stage away from more important hatreds. And this has to do in part with the fact that so many Jews are white. Not all Jews are white, but so many are white, and therefore they carry white privilege, that any sort of persecution they experience is secondary to any other kind of persecution. So would it be the same argument against people on the right who say that all lives matter in response to Black Lives Matter? Is that kind of the same argument that people use when people of Jewish descent speak openly about the kind of anti-Semitism they're experiencing? Is it is it the same kind of argument against? Is that Well, it's saying you shouldn't be taking up airspace. There are those that would say 
Jews as white people who tend to be socioeconomically privileged and educated and have jobs don't have the right to claim that they're persecuted in any way, honestly. And one of the problems with that is it's people engaging in comparative suffering or comparative pain, which of course never goes anywhere. And people are saying, my suffering is worse than yours, therefore yours does not matter. Um, but there's, in addition to there actually being a sense of this should not be treated as a genuine persecution, there's actually antipathy towards Jews in the left as well. And they're blamed for being at the root of various problems. And you start to see language that looks like the protocols of the elders of Zion. And you start to see language. What does um, that mean, the protocols of the elders of Zion? Oh, I mean, I think of a matrix. I think you're making a matrix reference when I'm you totally talk about not. that. I know, but I... You're right, that was called Zion. Yeah, and those were oh, the wow. elders. And they were. Yes. <gasps> wow. Mind blown. Mind blown. Okay. Okay. Um, this is around the right around the turn of the 20th century, and I'm forgetting the exact dates, but around 1900, a publication came out called The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. It was purported to have been written by a man who was a sociologist who snuck into the top secret hidden meeting of the elders of Zion, that is the leaders of world Jewry, and he overheard and recorded their conversations about how they were going to take over the world. And they were going to do it by taking over the financial markets, and they had a huge stockpile of gold just waiting, by taking over media, and by taking over the government. And um, this book came out, and people thought, oh, right, we've always known that the Jews were going to do this. We've always known this. Now we have proof about it. Turns out it was written by a notorious anti-Semite, a Russian man, who even had an anti-Semitic newspaper, and that it was a forgery, but nobody believed it was a forgery. That doesn't matter. Exactly. And I could see that. Henry Ford circulated it in the wow. United States, yeah. and it was required reading in elementary schools in the Third Reich. And it was circulated in DP camps and the contemporary Middle East when the State of Israel was formed. Do you think with the attempt to de delegitimize the, the press, the media currently, that we are in a similar kind of danger where forgeries could be produced that help lead to the kind of anti-Semitism that was experienced by people earlier last century? Oh, yeah, right? I mean, do you think that there... It makes me wonder what kind of things could be produced, and now it's in an environment where you can't, you can't trust any source. All sources are, are, right. are questioned, and, and at the same time, paradoxically, there are some sources that aren't questioned, that should be, right? It's like requesting the wrong sources. Right. Totally. In fact, I was cornered last night by a person with whom I was arguing politically, and he said, well, where do you get your news? And I knew the minute that I listed the, like, 14 sites that I use, None I was going to be told they were fake news. That's right. Right. And so if we can't even agree on the information that's coming out, how can we talk about the underlying problems? It right? seems to be kind of... Yeah, kind of a hotbed for, for this kind of thing to happen again. Mm -hmm. And the way you're describing it, to me, it sounds like, and this is a question I guess I have for you, is it, it's classical scapegoating, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. and, and historically, that has been the case, that the Jews over the centuries millennia. have been, over millennia, have yeah. been scapegoated, along with other minority groups, but the Jews in, in particular, and... I guess my, my question in part is, why? Why is it that, that people in the Jewish tradition are scapegoated? And why is it that, that this has been such a common experience of Jews over not just the centuries, but the millennia? Mm -hmm. why, where, what insight can you, 
can you share in your own reflection from your own reflection that answers the question of why? Hell, I don't know. But I can say that I've had the experience repeatedly of students coming into my classes, the classes on on introduction to Judaism, resistant to the idea that anti-Semitism is a problem or that it's a real thing. And then once we cover Jewish history, they say, whoa. And why do you think they they are resistant to that idea? Because, Because of the climate in the left right now. Progressive politics okay. is carrying a good deal of anti-Semitism. Right. Nobody wants to talk about it. In addition to the question I have about why, why is this the case? And, and maybe that's impossible to answer. I will totally answer it tonight. Okay. No, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> but, I mean, I have, I have some ideas outside of the tradition. But it's not only a question of why, but what. I mean, given how ingrained this is mm-hmm. in Western culture and given how... As you're saying, it's on the left and the right. What can we do? These are minor questions. These yeah. are little questions. I, you're I tend, asking. yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I, I wanted to make this an easy conversation. It's going to take a minute because the topic is such an easy it topic is. to discuss. And then we're going to have to find something else to talk about because this one's easy. I um, thought we could talk about less controversial subjects. Oh, right, like abortion. Uh, gay marriage, abortion. Okay, let's do that. Yeah. So. There's no way I think that you can start talking about the history of anti-Semitism without talking about the first few centuries of Christianity. I would agree with that. The earliest pure statement of anti-Semitism, you and I have talked about this, that I see is in the book of Esther. There is a certain people, they dwell apart, they're not like us, they don't behave the way that we do. You're talking about Haman. Yeah. And it yeah, is and your majesty talk. it is not in your majesty's interest to tolerate them. It's chilling to read that yeah. book on the other side of the twentieth century, especially. It is, it is totally Because uh, everything is scripted there, yeah. isn't it? it? It's sort of like and it, and then in the news uh, about a year ago, we were talking about this before the before the episode, Mike Pompeo talks about Trump as a new Esther. Right. And you think, wow, I mean, okay, so he's taking taking his understanding of what's happening political, politically right now, right from the playbook that describes and, or illustrates in detail sort of the basic recipe for anti-Semitism. Attempted genocide. Yeah. yeah. It's, the Book of Esther is about genocide. And it's so bizarre because when you look at the character of Mordecai, what does he actually do? He says, <laughs> I mean, he, he almost, what does he do to warrant Haman's Response, which illustrates the point you're making about how illogical it is. Yeah. Haman, he doesn't, he doesn't bow. The, the book of Esther provides the blueprint for mm. how illogical and extreme the response is. Mordecai doesn't bow to Haman. Haman gets upset. His ego is offended, right. whatever it is, and says, I'm going to basically to destroy the entire Jewish race, yeah. or at least all the because Jews of, it, of Persia. Yeah. And um, so it is illogical, and it doesn't it doesn't match. Um, uh, it isn't proportional. It isn't a proportional response. But what happened in the first few centuries of the the building of Christianity is, I think, more nefarious because what you start to have is a dynamic of people saying people following Christ and and seeing the fact that there were Jews who did not as a direct refutation of their belief, and an insult against it. And so this idea that Jews did not all start following Christ becomes what's wrong with the Jews. When the first followers of Jesus were in the minority, there was a different dynamic. 
Once that community is in the majority, it is time now to punish the Jews for not following suit. Right. And see them negatively, see them as missing the boat, see them as evil, um, see them as going against the will of God. And all of that then turns into the Christian empire's persecution of Jews. And I, I think that's probably the single most important piece of the history of anti-Semitism. So I had a professor in grad school who talked about how the beginning of Christianity was an inner debate uh, in, in Judaism among one group of Jews who claimed Jesus to be the Messiah and other Jews who claimed he was not. Once the Jews who claim Jesus is the Messiah start admitting Gentiles, the Gentiles take the, uh, the, the difference and turn it into a kind of animosity. Is that correct? I think that's a really compelling argument. I've heard many, um, and that research is ongoing. The mm -hmm. Great Divide, how did the Great Divide happen? Right. Um, I think that's very compelling. I think it has to do with power dynamics also, and it has to do with majority and minority culture, and it has to do with the destruction of the region in Rome in seven, by Rome in 70 and the Jews being sent out into exile and subsequently always being a population under the control of somebody else, whether it be the Christians or the Muslims later, and that when under the control of other peoples and subject to their whims, they are attacked. But the Jews are already being attacked even before the rise of Christianity. So there's a mm -hmm. there's a pogrom. Is that how you say it? Pogrom. Well, the pogroms are really only um, in the early modern period. But you've got one from 38 to 41 of Jews, at least, who were living in Rome. Yeah, you have a a, a specific attack. Right, mm -hmm. and so one of the arguments about. Paul in his letter to the Romans is that he's trying to, there's this famous verse in Romans that has been cited by, well, Jeff Sessions several years ago, and then long before <laughs> that, Lutheran theologians in Nazi Germany who would cite uh, Paul's claim in Romans 13.1 that one that Christians are compelled to submit to governmental authority because governmental authority was put there by God. Ah, okay. And so what a minority of, well, I would say now it's probably a, a fairly large number of New Testament scholars, Pauline scholars, point out that, in fact, this was a strategy that Paul was using to help protect the Jewish members of the Christian community mm -hmm. living in Rome from further persecution. Mm -hmm. Instead of drawing attention to themselves, which previously has led to persecution, the idea is be quiet and don't, uh, don't ruffle the feathers of the government such that uh, in order to survive. And this is a common way that, that early Christians survived persecution when it, when you, because you find the same admonition in uh, the first letter to Timothy, which was written probably toward the end of the first century by a, uh, a loyal follower of Paul. But You know, what's interesting is how that theory was ultimately disproven. What that, theory? Well, the idea of don't ruffle the feathers and whatnot. Um, the early it was disproven. You mean in New Testament scholarship? No, in the history of Jews. The okay. idea that if you don't ruffle anyone's feathers, you'll be okay. Okay. Did not work. Right, right. D did not work with the early reformers in 19th century Europe into 20th century Europe. If we look like them, if we dress like them, oh, right. if we talk like right. them, if we pray mm -hmm. like them, everything will be okay. It didn't work. It did not work. No. Yeah, that's no. Uh, you're right. That is, in the modern period, that is the... The great attempt and the great failure. And you cannot, you actually cannot talk about modern anti-Semitism without talking about Israel. 
Right. Because not only because on the left you have people conflating Jews all over the world with Israel as if they are unaware of the fact that Jews never agree about anything. So you're not actually going to find a group of Jews that are all of one mind about Israel, let alone positive about it, right? Um, And you have to take into account that the history of Judaism is such that most Jews feel like it's important that there be a place in the world they can go when they are no longer welcome here. Because history has shown all homes offered to Jews eventually turn them away. Jeez. Yeah. How do you even, I mean, it's so hard to process, process it. And again, I think it goes back to your point earlier that it's just fundamentally irrational. I think so, That yeah. there's a kind of animosity or, or hatred here that has no rational, logical explanation I mean, I'm thinking about the, the, the incident in Charlottesville a couple years ago now mm-hmm. and how the, the chant was, the Jews will not replace us. Mm-hmm. And I think about the fact that the Jews are about 1% of the world's population. Point that. Two. Oh, point 0.2. Okay. Even smaller. Even smaller than yeah. 1%. Maybe it's, a, it's an even broader question of why are people racist or... <sighs> I don't know what word you would use. I mean, part of the reason I don't even entirely feel comfortable uh, saying that this is an expression of racism is that the definition or meaning of, of Jewish is contested. It could be the religion, right? The, I don't, the yeah. ethnicity. I don't want to treat it as the same thing. I want to treat it as its own thing because also I feel like um, I want to honor uh, the world of scholars writing about racism right now and race. And say, you know, where I'm located in my work, I'm able to say a little bit about this. Um, The idea that Jews are a race, this is interesting, clearly emerges from racial theory of the 19th century. But earlier than that, there was a notion that Jews have different blood uh, in the Middle Ages as well. Uh, probably because they killed Christian children and drank their blood, right? The blood libel of the Middle Ages, which is still around. Um, for those of you who don't know, this was the um, the first actual uh, presentation of the blood libel was in the 12th century, and a little boy named William in England went missing, and they found his body, and the body had been abused, and someone came forward and said it was the Jews, and they lured him, and they kidnapped him, and they tortured him, and they drained his blood, and they used his blood in rituals, and they consumed his blood. And the idea that Jews use Christian blood to bake their matzah um, these ideas are still around. Sorry, I just... There's well, an example of an anti-Semitic trope that makes no sense. Right. Let alone because blood isn't kosher. Well, and w- yeah, there you go. And then <laughs> and what does libel mean in this context? I've never quite a, understood the a phrase. A false verbal accusation. I see. Oh, right. Libel. As yeah. in newspapers or yeah. journalism. Okay. Yeah. So when, uh, in my tradition, Martin Luther is often identified as an anti-Semite. He was called by the bishop who uh, was on, no, not the bishop, but Eichmann in the Eichmann trials was uh, uh, referred, I think it was Eichmann refers to Luther as the greatest anti-Semite of his age. He was seen favorably. Yeah, well, I mean, his, his treatise on the Jews and their lies, which he wrote toward the end of his life, was featured at the Nuremberg rallies. And it became sort of crucial, essential propaganda to lift up Luther, the, the hero of Germany, mm-hmm. long uh, or, or far beyond his religious reform, a cultural, historical hero, uh, as a champion of anti-Semitism. And one of, the, one of the 
articles that I read about why Luther was so anti-Jewish at the end of his life, and, and they say Luther was anti-Jewish, not anti-Semite. It's splitting hairs, but that he was against the Jewish religion at the end, not against people of Jewish descent. But because what he was saying to do was attack their bodies. He, he was. So, yeah. I mean, so, but it's not, it's not, he's not living on the other side of the 19th century where right. Jewish was a racial designation. He was anti-Judaism. He was anti-Judaism. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and justified in these uh, seven, I think it's seven expressions of sharp mercy that he talks about in the treatise. It's horrific. But the explanation for why Luther was this way is kind of, uh, it's kind of interesting because it, it, it supports exactly the point you're making about blood libel. He thought that uh, that the Jews were converting Christians back to Judaism, yeah. that they were uh, that they were circumcising Christians, that they were doing the things that you were talking about, and and he felt that because of this activity, the second coming was near, and that Christians had to had to do something in response. But he is essentially, in part at least, responding to rumors that were pervasive, sure. rumors that make no sense, mm -hmm. and rumors at the same time who engulfed Luther. Uh, along with everybody else. Although to the credit of the early Lutheran church, it was his uh, closest associates who tried to dissuade him from publishing the treatise, yeah. and he went ahead with it anyway. Uh, so, I mean, you, you want to think that there are at least some good people in right. the story who are pushing back, and they did apparently, but it wasn't enough to stop Luther at, this, at that point. I think another reason some people have historically and even today viewed Jews as being dirty, metaphorically and perhaps literally, if you read Mein Kampf and other such literature that describes Jews as being stinky and whatnot, but um, is that the ethic of education in Judaism and the emphasis on that results in um, a significant percentage of Jews having degrees and professions and doing okay, right? Um, and that there is a sense that they shouldn't have that. They should not have those jobs. They should not be economically secure. They, they should not be in positions of leadership um, because it's disproportionate to their actual numbers. I see. For example. And then there are more subtle forms. There's dinner table anti-Semitism, which is when people don't make any decisions in their lives and they're not out there attacking Jews in whatever way, verbally, physically. But they'll sit around the dinner table and be like, well, you know the Jews run Hollywood, right? This right. sort of thing. I had, a, I had a boyfriend once who um, wanted me to help him because he wanted to be an actor. And he figured that, like, my people, I had connections to my people in Los Angeles that could help him, right? And that's... You do have connections, though. I mean, you know a I couple famous people. I, I do, but, like... But so do I. Well, actually, I don't. I don't know... <laughs> I I just conflated I just conflated knowing with met. So oh. I met Hulk Hogan does not mean I know Hulk Hogan. You met Hulk I Hogan. I met George though. Lucas does not mean I know I know but it George was a profound Lucas. moment in your life I have no doubt. It was the the single most important moment of my life. I have no doubt about it. Every that. everything stopped for me in that moment. You know and what I was just thinking about? Life so was complete at that point. You love Star Wars. I love, love Star Trek. Love probably Okay. You're like super statement. into Star Wars, mm -hmm. and I love Star Trek. Right. Star Trek is like the Jewy version of these things. Like, but it's I a like whole Star bunch... Trek a lot too. I mean, okay. the original series, wow. That's it, the original yeah. series. That's only 
That's where I, I am 100% with you. Everything else was derivative. And the movies, too. I mean, Wrath of Khan. Best movie ever one made. One of the best movies. I'd say one of the best films no, ever made. No, the best. Okay. No, well, that would be Back sacrilege. to the... Right. So there's another subtle form of anti-Semitism that you're, you're super familiar with, and that has to do with, um, for example... I'm really curious. I'm super familiar with you it. You are. Okay. Yeah, not, right. no, because you're out there right. causing because harm. Because you're, you're practicing this, because you this, do this subtle form of anti-Semitism. No. Um, but as I mentioned to you earlier today, I had a student who came up to me at the end of class, and he said... Um, I might need some help in this class because I grew up in Catholic school and my priest told me that Catholicism was Judaism 2.0 and an improved version of Judaism. And now you're teaching me these things that are totally different. And I was like, super proud of you, student, for bringing this up and we're going to make it work and, and all of that. But supersessionism is ubiquitous. The idea that Christianity is an improvement upon Judaism, that the God of the Old Testament, in quotes, is angry and violent and horrific, and the God of the New Testament is love and, and you know, rainbows and puppies and unicorns. And um, this actually breeds a kind of disdain about Judaism that's pretty profound. And this is something where I feel, in my tradition, I can use Martin Luther against Martin Luther. Mm -hmm. So the Martin Luther who expressed his anti-Jewish sentiments at the end of his life was also the Martin Luther who called into question a number of the claims that you just made about the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New. Right. He found ample uh, evidence of what he called the gospel in the, in the Old Testament and not just predictions of Jesus in the Old Testament, which, of course, the Old Testament never, I'm using Christian language, but the Old Testament never talks about Jesus. That's the way that early Christians read the Old Testament sure. to make sense of their their God experience in, in and through Jesus of Nazareth. But that's not the way Jews read their own scriptures, right? Right, correct, so, so correct. So when when Luther looks at these passages, he calls them gospel, but I, I and which is a Christian term, or at least it became Christian, but he's basically saying, look, there are, there are lots of places in the Hebrew Bible where God is depicted as loving, mm -hmm where God is depicted as, well, the, what's the phrase? The slow to anger and abounding in steadfast yeah. love. He talked about Isaiah in this way, and he often referred to your favorite book, the, the book of Psalms, as... Uh, He's joking because I find Psalms boring. I find Psalms fascinating, and that would be another, <laughs> that would be another uh, episode, perhaps. We could have a debate on the Psalms. Can we just talk about Psalm 44? That's the only one I find interesting. Okay, we'll come back to that and why that's important. Okay. I guess my question is... What do we do? Right? Actually, there's one more form of anti-Semitism. Oh, okay. So Can we I have, do that? Yeah, okay. And then we'll do what do we These do? These are the subtle dinner table expressions of yeah. anti-Semitism? Okay. Fetishizing. Ah, The okay. fetishizing of Jews. Philo-Semitism, philo thinking that Jews are better and um, it is actually the other side of the anti-Semitic coin because it treats them as a body that um, shares these characteristics. And then you are in danger of experiencing being let down by the reality that Jews are humans. And I actually had a student, I love it when I have concrete examples, who came into the class. She was really excited to learn about Judaism. And um, she began the class saying, I just think Jewish history is really important and survival and struggle, and I'm really moved by it. At the end, she hated Jews because she discovered it's actually a human tradition with all of the failings that occur in every other tradition. And I sometimes have to say to my students in class, I just want to remind you, Jews are people. 
Are there assholes in the Jewish community? Oh, yes. Larry David. Did you think they were going to be fewer? Definitely Larry David. So um, so that's another form that I think it's important to talk about. It makes me wonder about absolutizing. Yeah. And how when we do that kind of thing, we're just setting ourselves up yeah. to, to be let down. And then in this case, to, to exhibit the exact opposite feeling that we felt at the beginning. So, yeah. Wow. We talked a little bit about the Psalms. That is why I've come to love that book, is that when I read the Psalms, even though my situation is radically different than the people who wrote those, uh, those writings. So, so is mine. So mm-hmm. is yours, right. I, I identified with them in their struggle of faith. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating to me that so many of the Psalms at least begin with, uh, well, most of them end with some kind of affirmation, mm-hmm. whereas, of course, Psalm 44 is the one that doesn't, yeah. which is, you've, you've pointed that out to me before, and I, it's made me really come to love that particular yeah. psalm because it's raw. It is raw. And, and I love that about those writings. Yeah. So it's not, the, it's not the, oh, Jews are smarter or they have money or whatever stereotype you want to use, although I do think that many of the Jewish people I know are smarter than I am. I also think that about I also think that about Irish people. Okay, that's awesome. So And I'm Jewish and Irish. Oh you <laughs> and I'm not smarter than you. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Oh my gosh. No, you could run circles around me. Nope. I guess our last question there there has to be we need a lot more time to discuss this topic. Oh, of course. So All of them. but but for now our last question is what in even a rudimentary sense can can we do? And who is who are we? When it comes right. to, to what we can do. I mean, I ask that as a, in, in part, in particular as a Christian, coming I, out of a tradition that is unfortunately rooted in the thinking of a man who exhibited some horrific uh, tendencies when it comes to his, late, at least later in life, when it comes to his thinking about the Jews. But you're part of a tradition that in, what was it, 1998? 94 with the the, the ELCA statement. You're part of a tradition that came out with a public statement saying, we're Lutherans. And we repudiate. Yeah, we hate this, or you repudiate. We we hate this document that he wrote. And and the document, I don't remember the exact language, but there's an apology. There's a statement of, we're sorry that this had such horrific... Results and, and there are other uh, church bodies that have done the same thing. The Stuttgart yeah. Declaration t- yeah. after the end of the Second World War. One of the things I fear, though, is that those kinds of statements are—they're incredible, they're amazing, and I admire the people who who not only articulate them but those who support them initially. Mm-hmm. But they have a tendency to take to kind of be. I don't know, uh, left in the background after a while. I mean, I don't know how many ELCA Christians are familiar with the fact that their denomination actually put out this document back in the early 90s. And... And I don't know how many people in the German church today, for example, are familiar with, with things like the Stuttgart Declaration. I don't know. It's a good question. I think a lot of the work that's being done right now to address fractured relationships... Um, is intercommunity engagement between churches and Jewish organizations. And I put it that way because you're right, Judaism is not solely a religion. But all Jews are, uh, have, a, have a reason to care about the work of intercommunity engagement and, and trying to um, change the nature of the relationships to become more positive. There are problems there. 
Um, and I think I told you this story before that uh, my rabbi in Atlanta, Joshua Lesser, was once on a panel, and it was supposed to be about Jewish-Christian dialogue, and it turns out that he was like the Jew, and then there were five ministers. Um, and they were all asking him questions, and then they were saying, well, how about if we look at it this way? And he kept saying, well, actually, the problem there is X, Y, or Z. And finally, one of them said, well, what do you want from us? And he said, we want to be left alone. And I feel like until that visceral, painful, traumatized reality is addressed in public discourse, we are going to be um, skating over the real wound. I don't quite know what to say to that, except, except yeah, it should be put out there. Mm -hmm. I mean, after all the harm that's been brought, maybe it's time for people just to step back. And, and yet at the same time, I guess that's one of many responses that need to happen. But yeah, but it's an integral one, has to, has to be articulated. I think it, there needs to be awareness. Um, and uh, there needs to be conversation, difficult conversation on the left about the reality of anti-Semitism and an incredibly long history and the legacy of trauma that's been passed down through the generations and the role that Jews play in progressive causes because Jews are so heavily involved in progressive causes and, and why their Jewishness should be accepted as relevant instead of being asked to forfeit their Jewishness in order to be a part of this good fight. So um, I guess these are the sorts of things. But ultimately, I don't know. And many Jews are not particularly sanguine about the, uh, the possibilities. And when new things happen and another synagogue has been attacked or there's anti-Semitic graffiti, the most common response from Jews is, oh, this again. Right. Not surprised. Right. Scared, disappointed, mm -hmm. not surprised. Angry, not surprised. Angry, not surprised. I keep coming back to this question of why, and one of my takeaways from this episode, this conversation, is that blueprint is there in Esther. Why? Mm -hmm. Why is it the case that Haman in that story is, is he suffers from wounded pride, mm -hmm. and his response is so disproportionate to the act? The reason he gives to the king, if, uh, if I remember correctly, is their laws are unlike ours. They are not like us. Yeah. yeah. A nation that dwells apart. But it, but it has to do with their laws, because the king doesn't know that Esther is Jewish until later in the story, right? No, yeah, the language is there is a, there is a people that uh -huh. they dwell apart, yeah. and their laws are not the same, and yeah. they do not obey the king's laws. Yeah, right, right. Mm -hmm. so, but it's about, their, uh, it's about their social location and about their, uh, the laws that they follow. It's not about their ethnicity, as such. No, that's a later yeah. designation. And yet at the same time, because of the fact that they dwell apart and they, they observe, they ostensibly observe different laws. I mean, you have this justification yeah. that, and a king who's indifferent mm -hmm. and, and yeah, it's, there's a scholar named uh, Linda Day, I think, who writes about Esther and says that on the other side of the, of the Holocaust, Esther belongs in the center of the canon. Mm -hmm. And she says the Holocaust has proven to, to people, I almost want to say to us, but it's not to us, because I, well, maybe it is. I'd like to know who the us is. But the Holocaust has proven to us that it's not just a story in the Bible. Right. That, it, that this is reality. Yeah. And that Esther is, is the first canonical work, at least, to name it. 
Yeah. So I think Esther and Job are the two most important biblical books after the Holocaust. Hmm. Well, on that note, I know. Um, we, thank you for yes. raising these questions and well, let's talking come back about to them. this. I think I think we have to keep coming back to an okay. issue like this. So, all right. All right.